The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. We start today with a poem about giving thanks by Maya Angelou. It's a poem about aging. It's called On Aging. In fact, let's read the poem and then discuss. On Aging. When you see me sitting quietly like a sack left on the shelf, don't think I need your chattering. I'm listening to myself. Hold. Stop. Don't pity me. Hold. Stop your sympathy. Understanding if you got it. Otherwise, I'll do without it. When my bones are stiff and aching and my feet won't climb the stair, I will only ask one favor. Don't bring me no rocking chair. When you see me walking, stumbling, don't study and get it wrong, cause tired don't mean lazy and every goodbye ain't gone. I'm the same person I was back then, a little less hair, a little less chin, a lot less lungs and much less wind. But ain't I lucky I can still breathe in. That's On Aging by Maya Angelou. We will have more about her and some poetry and essays by others today. Emerson, Thoreau, and American poets Sharon Olds and W.S. Merwin. We're looking at gratitude today on The History of Literature. Drinking a sip of tea there. Okay, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the podcast. Let's talk about Maya Angelou. I didn't give you a running commentary on the poem because it's pretty straightforward, I think. Maya Angelou. We are going to do an episode on her in 2022, hopefully. Boy, what a a person. What a poet. I think of her almost like a, a lyricist, a blues lyricist, where the authenticity is embedded in the poem, essential to the poem. Not every line is perfect. Sometimes there are cliches. You can see her going for the easy rhyme, but you just go with it thanks to the strength of her personality. And then a line jumps out at you, and it's so interesting and wonderful. You accept the the casual and even folksy nature of the first lines because they set you up for the killers. Here's what I mean. Here's the easy line, I think, in the poem On Aging. When my feet won't climb the stair, rhymed with don't bring me no rocking chair. Okay, well, that's a little moon in June for me. But then there's a line like, when you see me walking, stumbling, don't study and get it wrong. Because tired don't mean lazy and every goodbye ain't gone. Mm, That is great stuff. It means, the meaning is simple enough that I know what it means, and yet there are surprises there too, and there's mystery. When you see me walking, stumbling, that's poignant. Not just when you see me walking slow, or when you see me walking with a cane, but when you see me walking, stumbling. That is what it's like to watch someone older walk, right? There's the poignancy. You see them walking and you think, oh, look at that. Something so simple for most people and for this person. I knew them when they were young and strong and healthy. I know they once were. 
But all that is so long ago now, almost forgotten when they walked with grace and ease and purpose like young people do. And now I'm watching them walk, watching them shuffle, thinking about their frailty. And oh no, they stumbled. I knew it. They're old. They're closing in on death. Oh no. A stumble. Now I just feel pity for them. That's how I read that line anyway. When you see me walking, comma, stumbling, comma. Oh, it's devastating. And then don't study and get it wrong. The young person studies the older person, trying not to stare, probably, but fascinated. What is it fascinated? What is it like to have those old bones? That shuffling set of weary muscles. What is it like to stumble for no reason other than that's part of walking? Tired don't mean lazy, she says, although I think we're actually not thinking an old person is lazy. Do we? That's an assumption we don't make of the truly old, maybe the near old, someone in their 50s or 60s. You think, ah, oh, well, they just don't want to move anymore. They want to sit quietly doing nothing, sit on that couch in that chair. They've gotten lazy. And she says, hey, I'm not here like some quiet sack in the corner doing nothing. Actually, not a sack in the corner. A sack left on the shelf. What a great phrase for an old person. I'm not a, uh, a sack on the shelf. There's, you know what a sack on the shelf is like. There's stuff in the sack, but it's all misshapen now and nobody cares. It's forgettable. Just like the bones and muscles in an older person, tired, worn out, used up, just sitting there on the shelf. This is a young person's view of an older person. Why do you even sit there anymore, old man or old woman? You aren't young and strong like me. You're not out there all athletic and sexy. You're not in your prime. You're just a heap of human. Might as well be a brown paper bag of filled with something people stopped caring about long ago, a sack on the shelf. And she says, no, 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 I'm not here doing nothing. My mind is in here. My mind is still in here, and I'm not doing nothing. I'm listening to myself. That's what we miss often. The way the noise of life melts away, the getting and spending, all that as we age, we listen to ourselves now. We focus on what's important. So, who was Maya Angelou, by the way? She's one, one of the most read writers in America, I would say, sort of like Steinbeck, because she's taught so much in schools. She gets identified with middle school, maybe high school, but adults discover her too, as they do with Steinbeck, and find there are plenty of riches inside for grown-ups. She was born in 1928 and died in 2014. In between, she became famous for her poetry and her autobiographical works, especially I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. She was a civil rights activist and an essayist. She started her life in Missouri and Arkansas in the Depression, and she went through a lot of hardships, which we will have in our episode on her. She worked hard. I think we talked about her in the Writers at Work episode, she tried to rise above the world that fate had handed her. She became one of the great African-American voices of the 20th and early 21st centuries. We'll have much more on her when we do the full episode. For now, let's just focus on the last lines of the poem. Oh wait, I'm not quite there yet. 
There are those two lines, because tired don't mean lazy and every goodbye ain't gone. What do those mean? Let's take a quick break and find out. Oh, and we will also have another writer giving thanks today. Ralph Waldo Emerson, and maybe a little thorough for good measure. Some great November writers. November in New England. The leaves have turned. We're getting ready for winter. Flinty and hard scrabble, and yet not quite in hibernation. Days full of gorgeous silvery sunlight. Crisp air. The smell of smoke coming from fireplaces. Work to be done and thanks to be given. And a poem by Sharon Olds and maybe a little W.S. Merwin to round things out. We'll have all that after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, let's wrap up Maya Angelou and her poem on aging. Where were we? Tired don't mean lazy, which we talked about already. And this line, every goodbye ain't gone. That's like an amazing song lyric. You could hear Bob Dylan singing it. It sounds easy enough to understand, right? Each individual word is simple, but what does it actually mean? Well, I tried to find out. There's an anthology called An Anthology of Innovative Poetry by African Americans. The full title of that book is Every Goodbye Ain't Gone, an anthology of innovative poetry by African Americans. Aha, I thought. Maya Angelou, who's often viewed as powerful but fairly straightforward poet, plain spoken, is here being celebrated for this line. Well, (laughs) Maya Angelou isn't even in that book, as it turns out, and it turns out Maya Angelou didn't invent the phrase. She found it. Which, it's a saying that's new to me, but apparently it's been handed down in the black community for generations, which makes me feel left out because it is such a good phrase. I wish it had been part of my life long before now. Every goodbye ain't gone. It means 
it ain't over till it's over or maybe you think a story is over but it hasn't ended yet and who is that i hear in the background is junior wells who's here to tell us that this is a phrase that's not new thank you junior ah junior wells weighing in good lord i should have known about this long ago well hey i'll give Maya Angelou credit for adding this line to her poem, seeing the beautiful poetry in it and slotting it into the perfect spot. Sometimes poets are like magpies. They find the the shiny trinket and they know just where it goes in the nest. And then there's the ending of the poem. Here's the gratitude. This is why I've included the poem. I've got less hair. Did I say this poem was on gratitude? The title is on aging. Okay, getting ahead of myself. Okay, here's the gratitude in this poem. The last couple of lines, and she says, I've got less hair now, I've got a bigger chin, my lungs don't have that power they did when I was young and strong and could run around like a hero on a quest, but ain't I lucky I can still breathe in. (laughs) Every grammar school teacher in the country would cross out that word in. Ain't you lucky I can still breathe? Don't end a sentence, let alone your entire poem with a preposition. But it makes the line for me. It makes the whole poem. Ain't I lucky I can still breathe? Well, that has no life to it whatsoever. That's a platitude. Ain't I lucky I can still breathe in? That's a person talking. That's the, that has the ring of someone sitting right across the living room from me, talking, thinking, making me look at the gesture of breathing. Breathing is a concept that means life. Breathing in, breathing out. That's what it is. That's visual. That's putting it right before my eyes with authenticity. It's a person saying, I am grateful for this simple act. Not the act of breathing, the act of breathing in. Hmm. Maya Angelou. Our next grateful writer is Ralph Waldo Emerson, a 19th century American, one of the greats. We have an episode on him in the archives. Thinker, writer, lecturer, abolitionist, and of course, one of the Concordians and a transcendentalist, a champion of the individual, a lover of nature. The eyeball, that's Emerson. And his speech, the American scholar, was called by Oliver Wendell Holmes, America's, quote, intellectual declaration of independence, end quote. He wrote about concepts and values important to him. Here's a famous quote on gratitude that he wrote, quote, cultivate the habit of being grateful for every good thing that comes to you and to give thanks continuously. And because all things have contributed to your advancement, you should include all things in your gratitude. End quote. That's a meme. Long before there were memes. <laughs> it's meme-worthy. You'll see it now all over the internet, that quote. Here's another Emersonian passage I like. This is from his essay, Friendship. Quote, The scholar sits down to write, 
and all his years of meditation do not furnish him with one good thought or happy expression. But it is necessary to write a letter to a friend, and forthwith troops of gentle thoughts invest themselves on every hand with chosen words. See, in any house where virtue and self-respect abide, the palpitation which the approach of a stranger causes. A commended stranger is expected and announced, and an uneasiness betwixt pleasure and pain invades all the hearts of a household. His arrival almost brings fear to the good hearts that would welcome him. The house is dusted, all things fly into their places, the old coat is exchanged for the new, and they must get up a dinner if they can. Of a commended stranger, only the good report is told by others, only the good and new is heard by us. He stands to us for humanity. He is what we wish. Having imagined and invested him, we ask how we should stand related in conversation and action with such a man, and are uneasy with fear. The same idea exalts conversation with him. We talk better than we are wont. We have the nimblest fancy, a richer memory, and our dumb devil has taken leave for the time. For long hours we can continue a series of sincere, graceful, rich communications drawn from the oldest, secretest experience, so that they who sit by, of our own kinsfolk and acquaintance, shall feel a lively surprise at our unusual powers. But as soon as the stranger begins to intrude his partialities, his definitions, his defects into the conversation, it is all over. He has heard the first the last and best he will ever hear from us. He is no stranger now. Vulgarity, ignorance, misapprehension are old acquaintances. Now, when he comes, he may get the order, the dress, and the dinner. But the throbbing of the heart and the communications of the soul, no more. What is so pleasant as these jets of affection which make a young world for me again? What so delicious as a just and firm encounter of two in a thought, in a feeling? How beautiful, on their approach to this beating heart, the steps and forms of the gifted and the true. The moment we indulge our affections, the earth is metamorphosed. There is no winter and no night, all tragedies, all ennuis vanish, all duties even, nothing fills the proceeding eternity, but the forms all radiant of beloved persons. Let the soul be assured that somewhere in the universe it should rejoin its friend, and it would be content and cheerful alone for a thousand years. I awoke this morning with devout thanksgiving for my friends, the old and the new. Shall I not call God the beautiful, who daily showeth himself so to me in his gifts? I chide society, I embrace solitude, and yet I am not so ungrateful as not to see the wise, the lovely, and the noble-minded, as from time to time they pass my gate. Who hears me, who understands me, becomes mine, a possession for all time. Nor is nature so poor, but she gives me this joy several times, and thus we weave social threads of our own, 
a new web of relations. And as many thoughts in succession substantiate themselves, we shall by and by stand in a new world of our own creation, and no longer strangers and pilgrims in a traditionary globe. My friends have come to me unsought. The great God gave them to me. By oldest right, by the divine affinity of virtue with itself, I find them, or rather not I, but the deity in me, and in them derides and cancels the thick walls of individual character, relation, age, sex, circumstance, at which he usually connives, and now makes many one. High thanks I owe you, excellent lovers, who carry out the world for me to new and noble depths, and enlarge the meaning of all my thoughts. End quote. That's Ralph Waldo Emerson. We'll hear from his protege and friend, Henry David Thoreau, in a moment. Are you feeling grateful yet, people? Grateful for what you have? What's the source of that gratitude? Is it God and his blessings? Family and friendship? The harvest? Being alive? Or does it just feel good to be grateful like a form of giving, as I suggested last time? Thank you for letting me give. Is that Thanksgiving? Hmm. Okay, let's turn now to a 20th century poet who writes about Thanksgiving the holiday. This is Sharon Olds, a Pulitzer Prize-winning poet from San Francisco. First Thanksgiving by Sharon Olds When she comes back from college, I will see the skin of her upper arms, cool, matte, glossy. She will hug me, my old soupy chest against her breasts. I will smell her hair. She will sleep in this apartment, her sleep like an untamed, good object, like a soul in a body. She came into my life the second great arrival, after him, fresh from the other world, which lay from within him, within me. Those nights I fed her to sleep, week after week, the moon rising and setting and waxing, whirling over the months in a slow blur around our planet. Now she doesn't need love like that. She has had it. She will walk in glowing. We will talk. And then, when she's fast asleep, I'll exult to have her in that room again, behind that door. As a child, I caught bees by the wings and held them some seconds looked into their wild faces, listened to them sing, then tossed them back into the air. I remember the moment the arc of my toss swerved and they entered the corrected curve of their departure. Mm, Okay, there's a lot to love there. The gratitude is implicit. The holiday of Thanksgiving is explicit right there in the title. First Thanksgiving, which in America usually conjures up a history lesson. The pilgrims, the harvest, uh, the Native Americans arriving to celebrate together, etc., etc. A lot of it is a bunch of hokum, actually, but we all learn it in school, along with a bunch of other myths. 
It's fine for what it is, but we've all moved on. We don't worship these pilgrims or anything. In fact, Thanksgiving has given a lot of pleasure to a lot of people. It's a good holiday. Families have gotten together at various stages of their lives. Generations pass, handing off the holiday to one another like batons to relay runners. Sometimes one is alone for the holidays. Sometimes one has an unexpected guest. And sometimes, like this first Thanksgiving in this poem, a change has happened. It's not the first Thanksgiving of the history lessons for grade schoolers. This is the first Thanksgiving following a change in the poet's life. The change here is that the child has gone off to college And for many people, this is familiar. This is the cycle. The kid goes off to school at the end of August or start of September and maybe comes home but on the weekends here and there. But maybe they're too far away to come home that often, and they're busy, of course. And maybe you go to visit for parents' weekend, but maybe not. Maybe it's been a huge disruption to have this kid leave this kid who's lived in your house or apartment for years and years, and maybe Thanksgiving will be the first time you will see them, the first time you will have them back. But they've changed too. They're living on their own now, not under your roof and rules, and they have their own thoughts. Folds captures this nicely, the anticipation of it, the handoff, from one generation to the next. How the poet has an old, soupy chest waiting to hug this young person. That's how the chest will feel, old and soupy, when this young person's breasts appear. But who cares? Because although I am old, says the poet, I get to live in these moments and these memories. I am all ages at once. We see that in the Maya Angelou poem, too. I'm old, sure, but don't think I'm a different person. It's me in here. My eyes are the same. So is my mind, and Sharon Old says, I will get to smell her hair. What a mom. That is a mom thought. A creator of life. I will get to smell her hair, and I'll get to think about her being in that room again, behind that door and how I used to be in this room nursing her, literally feeding her from my body and everything we shared together as the moon whirled around. That's a nice touch. She was growing older, days were passing, days and months and years, and I could tell you about a million memories of all the things we did together, the trips we took, and how we used to do this and that, and eat together, and go to school, and do homework, and all that, but you know what? I don't need to tell you that because we're taking a cosmic view of this where the planets spin and the stars wheel around and we all know how time passes, right? But if you really want to know what it's like to raise this kid and own them in a sense, be everything for them, control them, and gradually and gradually and gradually let them get ready to go off on their own and then finally set them free. It's like this, says the poet. It's like when I used to catch a bee and hold it for some seconds, wild and ferocious and staring back at me, but under my control, 
singing. My little fingers were enough to keep it, to hold it, because I was so much more powerful than this little bee, and I'd stare at it, marveling at how wild it was, how independent it could be if I let it go, and then I did let it go. I threw it into the air, and it swerved under my power. It took the path of my toss, because it wasn't quite independent yet. But then... It straightened out its curve and righted itself in midair and then flew in the direction it wanted to fly, the direction of its departure. Just as this daughter of mine will now fly under her own power in her own direction, headed for whatever hive or honey she seeks, departing from me. And I will remember that moment with the bee but never again have that power over the bee, which is all right and good. It's how the universe works. It's how parenting works. It's beautiful, but it's savage and devastating too. And I'm thankful to be a part of it. Okay. We'll take our last break and then we'll have two more great writers on gratitude. David Thoreau is next. Harrison Blake was a friend of Thoreau's. He was born in Worcester, Massachusetts. He went to Harvard College and Harvard Divinity School. He became friends with Ralph Waldo Waldo Emerson and used to come and see him in Concord, and he and Thoreau met there, and they became pen pals. They went on hikes together now and then. Here's what Blake said of Thoreau, quote, Our relation, as I look back on it, seems almost an impersonal one and illustrates well his remark that our thoughts are the epochs of our li- in our lives. All else is but as a journal of the winds that blew while we were here. His personal appearance did not interest me particularly, except as the associate of his spirit. Although I felt no discord between them, when together we had little inclination to talk of personal matters, his aim was directed so steadily and earnestly toward what is essential in our experience, that beyond all others of whom I have known, he made but a single impression on me. Geniality, versatility, Personal familiarity are, of course, agreeable in those about us and seem necessary in human intercourse, but I did not miss them in Thoreau, who was, while living, and is still in my recollection and in what he has left to us, such an effectual witness to what is highest and most precious in life. As I reread his letters from time to time, which I never tire of doing, I am apt to find new significance in them, am still warmed and instructed by them, with more force occasionally than ever before, so that, in a sense, they are still in the mail, have not altogether reached me yet, and will not, probably, before I die. End quote. That's Harrison Blake, Thoreau's friend. Here's what Thoreau wrote to Blake on gratitude. It's kind of a 
amusing letter. <laughs> we have to read between the lines a little bit on this one. Okay. To Harrison Blake at Worcester. This is Concord. That's the date line for this. Concord, December 6th, 1853. Mr. Blake, I trust that you got a note from me at Eagleswood about a fortnight ago. I passed through Worcester on the morning of the 25th of November and spent several hours from 3.30 to 6.20 in the traveler's room at the depot, as in a dream it now seems. As the first Harlem train unexpectedly connected with the first from Fitchburg, I did not spend the forenoon with you as I had anticipated on account of baggage, etc. If it had been a seasonable hour, I should have seen you, i.e., if you had not gone to a horse race. But think of making a call at half-past three in the morning. Would it not have implied a three o'clock in the morning courage in both you and me, as it were? ignoring the fact that mankind are really not at home, are not out, but so deeply in that they cannot be seen. Nearly half their hours at this season of the year. I walked up and down the main street at half past five in the dark and paused long in front of Brown's store, trying to distinguish its features, considering whether I might safely leave his Putnam in the door handle, but concluded not to risk it. Meanwhile, a watchman seemed to be watching me, and I moved off. Took another turn around there and had the very earliest offer of the transcript. That's a newspaper. Earliest offer of the transcript from an urchin behind, whom I actually could not see. It was so dark. So I withdrew, wondering if you and B would know if I had been there. You little dream who was occupying Worcester when you were all asleep. Several things occurred there that night, which I will venture to say, were not put into the transcript. A cat caught a mouse by the, at the depot and gave it to her kitten to play with. So that world-famous tragedy goes on by night as well as by day, and nature is emphatically wrong. Also, I saw a young Irishman kneel before his mother as if in prayer, while she wiped a cinder out of his eye with her tongue. And I found that it was never too late or too early to learn something. These things transpired while you and B were, to all practical purposes, nowhere and good for nothing, not even for society, not for horse races, nor the taking back of a Putnam's magazine. It is true. I might have recalled you to life, but it would have been a cruel act, considering the kind of life you would have come back to. However, I would fain write to you now by broad daylight and report to you some of my life, such as it is, and recall you to your life, which is not always lived by you, even by daylight. Blake, Brown, are you awake? Are you aware what an ever-glorious morning this is? What long-expected, never-to-be-repeated opportunity is now offered to get life and knowledge? For my part, I am trying to wake up, to wring slumber out of my pores, for generally I take events as unconcernedly as a fence post, absorb wet and cold like it, and am pleasantly tickled with lichens 
slowly spreading over me. Could I not be content then to be a cedar post, which lasts 25 years? Would I not rather be that than the farmer that said it, or he that preaches to the farmer, and go to the heaven of posts at last? I think I should like that as well as any would like it. But I should not care if I sprouted into a living tree, put forth leaves and flowers, and bore fruit. I am grateful for what I am and have. My thanksgiving is perpetual. It is surprising how contented one can be with nothing definite, only a sense of existence. Well, anything for variety. I am ready to try this for the next 10,000 years and exhaust it. How sweet to think of my extremities well charred and my intellectual part too, so that there is no danger of worm or rot for a long while. My breath is sweet to me. Oh, how I laugh when I think of my vague, indefinite riches. No run on my bank can drain it, for my wealth is not possession, but enjoyment. What are all these years made for? And now another winter comes, so much like the last. Can't we satisfy the beggars once for all? Have you got in your wood for this winter? What else have you got in? Of what use a great fire on the hearth? and a confounded little fire in the heart. Are you prepared to make a decisive campaign, to pay for your costly tuition, to pay for the suns of past summers, for happiness and unhappiness lavished upon you? Does not time go by swifter than the swiftest equine trotter or racker? Stir up Brown, remind him of his duties, which outrun the date and span of Worcester's years past and to come. Tell him to be sure that he is on the main street, however narrow it may be, and to have a lit sign, visible by night as well as by day. Are they not patient waiters, they who wait for us? But even they shall not be losers. End quote. Okay, I, li I like how Blake seems to be a good sport about this affectionate toward Thoreau when he looks back on the letters he received. But boy, Thoreau's a bit annoying, isn't he? I like his idea of being a tree or a post, his, his thoughts about living in nature, but he's so condescending. I came to see you, but you were at a horse race. Frivolous as usual. And then when I was seeing great things, you were asleep like a dead man. Wake up, you fool. Live life. But Thoreau slept too, of course, everyone does. Why don't you and I, dear listener, what if we write an essay now called Henry David Thoreau, you idiot dead man, you're nothing compared to us, why don't you try living for once? Jeez. So you saw an Irish woman lick a cinder out of her son's eye, which is pretty cool, by the way, that's a great image. I like learning that, I like imagining that, I've never imagined that before, and you saw a cat catch a mouse and give it to a... A kitten, that's another great thing. But guess what, Henry David Thoreau? You can see some cool things at a horse race, too. I like the passion you have for your own life, but don't assume you're the only one who knows how to live, Thoreau. You find some willing audience of, of sleepwalking humans who were excited to hear from you and be lectured by you like this in these letters? 
I don't know. On the other hand, that phrase about Thanksgiving is fantastic. My Thanksgiving is perpetual. We should all live by that credo. The famous phrase is deservedly famous. Henry David Thoreau. Mixed blessings for me. <laughs> At least in this letter. Okay. Our last thankful writer, our last thanker, is poet W.S. Merwin, another American poet. He was born in 1927 in New York City and spent part of his youth growing up in Scranton, Pennsylvania, which of course is famous as the home of the Michael Scott Paper Company. He died in 2019 at the age of 91. He wrote something like 50 books of poems and essays. Edward Hirsch, another poet, called him the Thoreau of our era. Why? Well, Merwin was an advocate for the environment, a practicing Buddhist, and he explored a sense of wonder at the universe. He was also very innovative, a master craftsman, a supremely accomplished poet. This poem captures a lot of that. Okay, thanks. It's called by W.S. Merwin. Thanks. Listen. With the night falling, we are saying thank you. We are stopping on the bridges to bow from the railings. We are running out of the glass rooms with our mouths full of food to look at the sky and say thank you. We are standing by the water, thanking it, standing by the windows, looking out in our directions, back from a series of hospitals, back from a mugging. After funerals, we are saying thank you. After the news of the dead, whether or not we knew them, we are saying thank you. Over telephones, we are saying thank you. In doorways and in the backs of cars and in elevators, remembering wars and the police at the door and the beatings on stairs, we are saying thank you. In the banks, we are saying thank you. In the faces of the officials and the rich and of all who will never change, we go on saying thank you. Thank you. With the animals dying around us, our lost feelings, we are saying thank you. With the forests falling faster than the minutes of our lives, we are saying thank you. With the words going out like cells of a brain, with the cities growing over us, we are saying thank you. Faster and faster, with nobody listening, we are saying thank you. We are saying thank you and waving, dark though it is. Hmm. Wow. Okay. The words chime like an incantation, don't they? They speed toward us and they chime. Thank you. Thank you. We are saying it. That's all we have. That's all we do. Maybe it's a good response. Maybe it shows how noble we are, how pure, how humble. But maybe it's a little manic, too. Right? We can't stop all this death and destruction. Nobody cares. Dark though it is, we say thank you and waving. Who is there to hear us? Who will stop all this suffering? What a delicious, dark, maybe hopeful poem. It calls forth all my powers. After funerals, we say thank you. We say it everywhere. Police are at the door. Beatings on the stairs. And we say Thank you, bankers and the rich and the official. My God, we're all oppressed. We're being squashed out here like bugs. 
cities are growing over us. What do we do? We just say thank you. Why? Because maybe we're fodder for your cannon, we're grist for your mill, but maybe, just maybe, we're bigger and better than you too. Maybe we rise above, express gratitude because we are nobler. We are full of truths that you will never know. We can tap into importance that you can't, to significance, to profundity. Maybe our giving thanks to you, to the universe, is a sign that we are out here alive. We cannot be destroyed and we cannot even be dissuaded. Thanks is ours to give for being alive, and we shall give it. Okay, there we go. Thanks for listening to us today. As always, I'm Jack Wilson. My thanks, boy, I do a lot of thinking on this podcast, don't I? always thanking writers. I'm always thanking listeners. I've always, it reminds me a bit of my... Well, here's a story. Let's turn down the music. Here's a story. Can we turn on the music? Okay, thank you. <laughs> Yet another thank you. Oh, this just occurred to me. The word thanks just put this in my mind. Here's a little bonus story for you. It reminds me a bit of my three-year-old. Well, he's a 17-year-old now, but when he was three... And we got into our elevator when we were living in New York. And the woman across the hall got into this young and beautiful woman, 22 or 23, and full of life. Too young for me, the old man with the kid, the old man with my soupy chest. (laughs) And a kid, too old for her, but old enough. She was too young for me, but she was old enough that she looked down at my son with kindness and affection and good cheer, like a babysitter might look at him. And she said, well, hello there. Aren't you handsome? And he said, some might say I should thank you. I say I should spank you. My jaw dropped. She looked at me. I was assuming I had something to do with that, I suppose. I was his parent. After all, I I was helpless. I had no idea where he got that or why he said it. And he was just chuckling away to himself, not really aware of anything. He was so innocent, but yet, how did he... I assumed it was was from some kid's book or some song or something. Where else would he have learned that? He didn't make it up, I don't think. And why on earth would he say it to a stranger? And why would he say it to her of all people? But there we go. It happened. I don't know. I don't know how it happened. And I didn't know what to do. I stammered out an apology. And oh, I told my son to watch his business. That's not nice. What are you saying? What are you doing? And the woman smiled in that. Okay, you're insane. This is weird. But I guess it's not. Too weird? That was her smile. <laughs> I guess you're just, you didn't know he was going to say that. And 
You're an okay parent after all. <laughs> uh, the door slid open and off she went into Manhattan and off we went to. I still don't know where he got that phrase. I'm frankly afraid to Google it. And so, dear listeners, let me assure you, we will only be thanking today. There will be no spanking. Happy Thanksgiving. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.